This is the Art of Darkness podcast with Kevin Kautzman and Brad Kelly. We're a couple of very online writers interested in the dark side of what drives creative people to create against all odds. This show is about art and the people who make it, what it costs them, and what it takes to bring something unique and impactful into the world. Each episode, we excavate the life and work of an artist you might think you know. Don't worry, they're all safely dead. On every episode, we try and find out just what the hell was wrong with them and how they worked through their darkness to create something that lives on after them and continues to move culture. Find us online at artofdarkpod.com and on Twitter at artofdarkpod. All right, we've got some sponsors for the pod now. Wait, what? Every link you need for the things we talk about here is at artofdarkpod.com slash sponsors. First up, books. If you're into this podcast, Odds are you're probably a reader. We've got links to buy new books from bookshop.org and used books from alibris.com. And if you want to listen to your books, we recommend and use audible.com. It's great and the catalog is huge. All right. So if you're listening to this, you are online. Maybe you're very online. You probably have a website or are thinking of starting one. Maybe you want a website like artofdarkpod.com. We built that with WordPress, which is by far the most popular way to create websites. And the single best host for serious WordPress is WP Engine. I've personally used them for over a decade now, and I don't host my websites anywhere else. Go to artofdarkpod.com slash sponsors and click on the WP Engine link to learn more. Finally, the best way to support the show is at patreon.com slash artofdarkpod. Get the bonus After Dark content for every episode, access to the book club, and more. Thanks for supporting Art of Darkness. And I, I don't think that was too painful. I think no, we did a pretty good job good. there. Yeah. Yeah, that sounded good. Yeah. Yeah, we appreciate it. And we are back in the dark room. I'm Brad Kelly and my co-host Kevin Houtsman. Kevin, how are you this evening? I've been good. My yeah. cult meetings have been going very well. The, the, the new are you, talking about, are you talking about your day job or what? Yeah. I'm talking about the other day job. <laughs> we only meet at night. <laughs> ah, ooh. That's right. Beneath the ruins. <laughs> <laughs> How are you? Chant ancient, uh, from ancient tablature. Uh, I'm good, man. I, I'm good. You know, I got to keep myself, my spirits buoyant to talk mm. Lovecraft so I can survive it. Um, uh, kind of gave it away. We're talking, if you clicked on this link, you probably know we're talking about uh, Lovecraft and Faulkner, H.P. Lovecraft, William Faulkner, two great American writers. Now, for people who've been following along, you know how a dark room works. We've covered these subjects in depth on previous episodes, kind of telling the whole story about them and dipping into their work. And this is a dark room where we have uh, a guest come on who, you know, has a perspective on, in this case, two of our subjects. Um, and, you know, we have a we have a slightly more informal conversation. It's almost like a breakout session. If the main episode were to be, you know, the main conference talk, this is sort of the breakout session. And we get to go a little bit deeper into specific subjects. I like to think of these as more as like breakdown sessions. <laughs> yeah, we've yeah. had okay. people. Right. People have pulled guns. Uh, we've had uh, I, I've stormed one off one the gun. set. One gun, one antique <laughs> gun. I don't even think they make ammunition for that gun anymore. Oh, but he does. <laughs> oh, you know, yeah. Aaron Gwynn does. Do you, you want to introduce our guest? Yes, I'm very excited. yes, yes. Yeah. So, so we're bringing, we've brought uh, David Leo Rice, uh, uh, writer, 
uh, host of the or co-host of the Wake Island podcast. Great podcast. You people should check out. Kevin, what's that? Well, and I see that David has it looks like Pinter, a collection of Pinter's work there rather prominently displayed. Oh, sure so I, have, I have some respect. Is that am I correct? Totally. He's up tomorrow for uh, for my teaching. We're doing old times. Okay. Oh, uh, cool. so he's, he's, one of, he's one of my guys for sure. Right? Very cool. All right. All right. Good, good, okay. good. I like this. Um, Just want to continue my intro of David. David Leo Rice, author of uh, the Room and Dodge City trilogy. I've been plugging away at one of the volumes. Excellent. Highly recommend it. Um, It's uh, I don't want to say too much about it. I'm going to let David talk about it uh, or whatever of his own work he wants to talk about. But I highly recommend the Room and Dodge City trilogy. Um, also the author of Angel House and fairly recently with Chris Kelso, the book um, Children of the New Flesh, which is a compendium of, compendium of reflections on the early work and pervasive influence of one David Cronenberg. And as I said, he is also the co-host of the Wake Island podcast. You can find him at ravidice.com that's also his twitter handle at ravidice r-a-v-i-d uh d-i-c-e um so thanks for your time david we really appreciate you coming on um i think i reached out to you just like hey mate let's work together let's have you on for something and i don't think i you know we even had an idea who we were going to talk about at first and you came back with faulkner lovecraft and i was like yes <laughs> yeah, it's an exciting topic. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I've always kind of intuited a, a connection there. Um, maybe not always. I think I started to in my sort of reintroducing myself to Lovecraft to do our original episode. Um, and yeah, there is fertile territory there. Um, if I can back up for a second, though, like what at what point, what is your history with Lovecraft, I guess? Where did you okay. start reading it? Uh, so I grew up, maybe to start even earlier than that, I grew yeah. up in Northampton, Massachusetts, Western Mass. Oh, you're so like I'm right definitely, there. definitely a New Englander. Yeah. Uh, that sense of just, you know, rotting, decaying towns was super prevalent. And also Northampton, Mass is named after Northampton, England, which is where Alan Moore lives, who right. is kind of one of the world's great Lovecraft scholars and reinterpreters. And, and I would say Moore's uh, Providence is really one of the great things to be done with the Lovecraft world, maybe ever, but certainly recently. Mm -hmm. um, so that world felt super familiar to me. Um, yeah. You isn't know, that about, uh, sorry, isn't that about 20 miles from Amherst or so? Less five, five, five six miles. So right across right. the river. Okay. Yeah, so we're talking I'm, about Emily Dickinson. She's, yeah, I'm, she's, I'm doing Emily. Right I'm, in the I'm, yeah, that's that's great. And I now I'm starting to think about Lovecraft. You know how they did uh, Jane, uh, what was it? Pride and Prejudice and Zombies. I'm thinking about like some more sophisticated uh, you know, uh, Emily Dickinson and Lovecraft kind of mashed Well, because they were both kind of shut-ins and both famous letter writers, right? So it could be, a you know, someone makes a discovery that they were corresponding with each other. And, Something like you know, that, sim yeah. Symbols in, in um, Dickinson's poetry represented, you know, symbols in Lovecraft's world. Could, like be, could totally. be cool stuff, I, I had, yeah. Kind of Let's put a, we're going to put a copyright on that right now. Right. Well. <laughs> when, uh, you know, so growing up next to Amherst, you know, in fourth grade, fifth grade, like every year, they would take us to Emily Dickinson's house, which is, you know, it's a museum and a site. But I feel like they never once expressed the scope of her fame. Like they introduced her as this kind of eccentric, like local poet who, you know, lowered snacks to the kids in a basket. You know, and then I felt like I got to college and everyone was talking about Emily Dickinson. I was like, wait, like you've heard of her too? Like <laughs> that's our that's that woman that we know. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. She's yeah. the lady in the house, right? A very Faulknerian character, too. Yeah. Yeah. 
Right. Yeah, very cool. So so yeah, Northampton. Now then you so that that brings I don't know how far that is from Providence, but it's all in the same sort of time zone. Uh did you get into Lovecraft like as a teenager? Because I know that's when a lot of people get into it. Yeah. So I think Faulkner and Lovecraft. So Lovecraft, you know, was just ubiquitous. Like he was, you know, these kind of pulp editions were circulating. Uh mm-hmm. forget who put it in my hands initially, but I can remember um, I took a gap year with three friends before college, and I can remember being on a train in Italy reading the music of Eric Zahn, and somehow it, you know, I found it extremely interesting, but it was like it made me homesick in a very particular way. It made me long for, like, what is uniquely depraved about the American spirit realm. Interesting. Yeah. <laughs> what do you right. think it is that is uniquely well, <laughs> depraved about the i like this phrase go ahead i think it's something i mean we could start here it's a connection something you see in faulkner and lovecraft i think is this sense that there's the ultra new or almost like the ahistorical in the new world you know that there's just like whatever's happening right now and then the deeply ancient like something older than recorded history you, know, you see that in moby dick too right of just like primal forces of nature cormac mccarthy but what there isn't twin peaks twin peaks twin peaks 100 percent, 100 but what you don't have is anything in between you don't have sort of like the ordered recent history the way you do in europe right which yeah. makes sense that lovecraft and faulkner were both ambivalent right they kind of longed to be more english than they really were right and they you know lovecraft famously affected a british accent faulkner kind of named himself Faulkner, right? It's really well and he 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 affected an accent too, right, Brad? Yeah, he I mean, he imitated he basically pretended to be an Englishman to get into the Royal Flying uh, Air Force in Canada and affected a British accent for months on end. Right. So, yeah, they both that is certainly something that they both they both tended towards. And it is it is funny that there it does feel and I can't quite put my finger on it because I'm a Midwesterner, right? But there is something Southern about Lovecraft a little bit. I've always felt being felt there. I mean, certainly New England, a hundred, you know, without a doubt. But there's there's some tinge there, and it uh, it's very yeah, it's very interesting. Um, and it's something you feel. I mean, in Northampton, partly because it's in a valley, in the Connecticut River Valley, same as Amherst. In the winter, it you know, at least when I was a kid, it became super, super snowy. But in the summer, it would steam up because of the river and the mountains that would catch it. So it would become like insanely lush. It would become almost like psychedelically overgrown. Uh, and it was yeah. actually, this is something not that many people know, Connecticut and Western Mass were big tobacco growing areas. Oh. Weirdly yeah. enough. So like it totally did have the Southern feel that you would pass these like barns with the tobacco growing and there was some... It was like New Orleans half the year and Siberia the other half the year. Right. Very People really sleep on the importance of tobacco in American history. I personally do my part every single day to remember <laughs> that. Right. To pay, pay tribute to the old gods. I well, do, and, indeed I do. Yeah. And it's and, and and I'm glad you said pay tribute to the old gods because it had deep spiritual importance to you know the native peoples who are here long it still does it still does sure sure and i Mm -hmm. you know it's it's instrumental in various you know plant medicine traditions all all over the north and south america so so to speak of tobacco as one of the old gods is for a large number of people is literal I yeah. have a, a fun schizo internet schizo theory that when they pulled tobacco out of the mainstream, 
they did it intentionally and replaced it with the phones. I think the same <laughs> energy that went and there's we don't need to get into all the politics around what it meant to have a smoke break and all the rest of it. But there's there's a lot going on there. And you don't just totally re-engineer the culture in a five year span uh, from acceptable to unexpectable without there being unanticipated consequences 100 percent. yeah yeah and also yeah. the phone you know it's like about the size of a cigarette case right it's something you keep it, kind of in your pocket it, yeah your it's pocket. always you always have it on you exactly yep. yeah, yeah. Yep. you have to look away from the conversation to check it but you can still mm. be kind of talking to other people right, yeah. mm. right. interesting interesting i think actually conspiracy mindedness is a very american thing too which i think yeah. is related to the sense of us not being sure not having a settled history, right? Having the idea that there's something unknown in the present tense, and then these like ancient forces that we're always afraid go deeper than we think they do. Right. I mean, there's there's a there's a sense of filling in the void, and just like when you you know when you're a kid and you enter the dark cellar, right? Your brain, your imagination starts populating that that space, that unknown space with monsters, and yeah, and American history is. It is kind of like that same process, but sort of writ large. Yeah. And not knowing, you know, at least from the perspective of European Americans, you know, you're uprooted from a history in Europe that you may or may not know about, but you're uprooted from it. And then the question is, do you root yourself in something else? You know, whether it's, you know, some kind of alternative view of what history is, whether it's Native American culture, whether it's, you know, literature, or do you remain kind of rootless? And I think mm -hmm. that's something you see in both, um, Faulkner and Lovecraft is the sense of grappling with the idea of history turning into hearsay, right? Both of them tell their story. You know, there's this stylistic similarity, but both of them tell their stories through endless layers of, you know, this person said this and this person said that, or, you know, and Lovecraft is always, you know, finding a letter that was by someone who died, who may be encountered. There's always a sense that you can never yeah. get at anything firsthand, nor oh, can yeah. you trust the recorded sources the way maybe a you know, a proper Englishman in London could perhaps, right? But it, yeah, we, don't, no, we definitely don't trust that. <laughs> no, that's that's very well put. I mean, Absalom, Absalom, I think of when you say that for Faulkner, I think about Absalom, Absalom, which a large proportion, a large portion of Absalom, Absalom is based on, uh, what is it, Quentin Compson and his roommate basically speculating about the lineage and the stories and the myth of Sutpen, right? It's very much, you kind of have these hints and clues and somebody told me this then and somebody told my grandfather this another time and then I heard that this happened and then they're sort of playing with this idea until some distance through the book, you're like, well, boy, I don't know if any of this is true and then well wait, actually i'm reading a book so none of it's true but but you know what i mean it's sort of like it, it, there's an infinite regression um and that has been that's i think a amplification or an exaggeration of an american style of us telling our story to ourselves and it's um, a very american trade-off you know if you think about Sutpens or the snopes who are the, the other kind of great faulknerian uh like dark power figures, mm -hmm. uh, you know, on the one hand, you can become larger than life. Like you can become a living legend. On the other hand, it's like, you're never quite real. Like no one sure what's true about you. Right. Right. And you can, I mean, that's one of the powers too, right? Is the, the, the American tradition of reinventing yourself, right? Mm -hmm. Which you can't do 
as much as you you know it's too easy to google people now so you yeah, can't do it to maybe, the same degree you could maybe before. maybe maybe not i mean when we how many anons have we had on this podcast brad people are doing it at their desks yeah and that's true yeah in fairness yeah, we're doing it in the digital right. realm at this point right correct yeah yeah I've, right. I've always thought that the most the best way to um conceal your identity if you wanted to be anonymous on the internet is to actually sort of steal the identity of some random person just go on facebook take a couple photos of some random person from wherever and their name and then become that person online everyone wants years like in the early days of <laughs> laptops like, i don't know 15 years ago i was in the train station in philadelphia and for some reason i was there in like the middle of the night maybe waiting for a morning train and there was this guy mm -hmm. like on the bench next to me and i took out my laptop and i was doing some work and the guy kind of looks at it and he goes you know oh i need to get me one of those and i was like oh yeah like what you know what would you do with it and he goes yeah. well i would make a new identity and i said well what would you do then and he said i would improvise <laughs> <laughs> That's quite a moment. I love that. <laughs> and that is the sound of a thousand people being subtweeted by that comment. <laughs> Many such cases. That's awesome. Wow. <laughs> that rocks. Yeah. He did. Oh my gosh. So I want to think I picked yeah. up um the very beginning of the town, uh, which is not one of Faulkner's better books, but it's the That's second not book. one that I've read. Yeah. It's kind of bad. I, we can talk about this, but it shows how far he fell off. This one's from like the late 50s, but it's the second book in the Snopes series. Mm -hmm. And it just made me think of it the way he announces it. So on page one, I'll skim a little, but he says literally the first line of the book is, I wasn't born yet. So it was cousin Gowan who was there and big enough to see and remember and tell me afterward when I was big enough for it to make sense. That is, and then he lists like seven different people who saw all this stuff. And then at the end, he says, so this, meaning the book that's going to come, is what Gowan knew about it until I got born and big enough to know about it too. So when I say we and we thought, what I mean is Jefferson and what Jefferson thought. Whoa, right, right. Yeah, all kinds of ambiguities and in, in, in uh self-referential stuff there. And you're right, this does this does call to mind aspects of Lovecraft. Like I'm thinking of Call of, Call of Cthulhu, which is like uh, you know. The guy finds a thing from his, what is it? His uncle. Um, nobody's really sure what to do, what it is, or what to do about it. So you check with an expert, and they say it could be something like this, and it reminds them of a, you know, and, and uh, yeah. Eventually, you're just sort of layering in all of these partially known storylines until the end. You know, you're left with well, something happened. <laughs> yeah, but Lovecraft, and, it's even more amazing because he unique in maybe all modern literature spawned his own mythos right he sort of like discusses and describes the cthulhu mythos in his stories as if it already exists mm -hmm. and then almost almost in a supernatural way it comes to exist right and like you know many people up to today have dedicated basically their entire career to expanding that mythos like it really does feel like he yeah founded a new religion yeah. in a kind of shockingly powerful yeah. sense wednesdays from 11 30 until 1 30 in the morning for me is it that's Cthulhu calling hour? back yeah, yeah. yeah i told you <laughs> wasn't joking yeah, yeah. well what it, <laughs> and we had talked about in our original episode uh what is that guy's name kenneth um there's an english occultist who literally like who did an aspect of his cultic practice was to invoke the lovecraftian gods Right. And we've seen this with with Nick Land taking the old ones seriously and in and, and bringing those into his into his philosophy. So, like, yeah, these things are not these aren't just like fic 
they've become more than it's become more than a fictional conceit in a way um and that certainly outlives lovecraft himself um you had suggested david that we um you you'd seen some correspondences between faulkner and lovecraft specifically in the dunwich horror and i reread that and it had been a while that's when i read years ago and hadn't read since um and you know with that sort of primer of like just with Faulkner sitting on my shoulder reading that story, I couldn't, I, I couldn't stop seeing the correspondences. Honestly, like it, it feels like uh, a a Faulkner piece almost, right? And, and could you talk a little bit about how those two, you know, Dunwich Horror and Faulkner in general, or Faulkner specifically? What, what, how do you see those two being related? Absolutely, I think it's you know you could put Dunwich Horror and Absalom, Absalom, or Light in August, but. Maybe mm -hmm. Absalom is, is the clearest example. I think you could approach it from a number of angles. So one thing to say just very factually that, that is a kind of amazing correspondence is they wrote all their great work, including those those pieces, during the exact same years, basically 1927 to 37. Yeah, you know, Lovecraft mm -hmm. died in 37 and Faulkner, you know, didn't die, but he something in him died. Like he never quite yeah. reached, reached that level again. Mm -hmm. It's a little sad actually to read Faulkner's later work. But anyway, so there, mm -hmm. you know, those are the years, and it's a crucial time in history, right? Because it's after World War One, you know, they have this sense of Europe is in bad shape, right? So whatever relation they have to Europe, whatever fantasy they have about it is complicated by the fact that it seems to be on fire. You know, you have the beginning of something very strange happening in physics and in psychology, right? You have Einstein and Freud, who were important to both of them, even if they kind of pushed back on them, but they were very, very aware of those theories. You have the mm -hmm. depression in America, so that themes of um, degeneration and decay and things going to seed, very present within both of their works. Uh, you have eugenics around the world, right? I mean, in um, Germany, Japan, and America. So when you get into this idea of, you know, racial decay, or sort of, you know, to use Faulkner's favorite word, uh, miscegenation, mm -hmm. you see that all throughout Lovecraft and all throughout Faulkner, especially in these works where there's this kind of obsession with something monstrous entering the gene pool something like inhuman or maybe something that is human, but it's a kind of like abject form of humanity from the point of view of the narrator, you know, and both these guys were racist. I mean, they were kind of white supremacists in a way that is, you know, is well known. We, we don't need to uh, yeah. out them for that. It's clear. Um, yeah. But I think, you know, I reread um, Welbeck wrote this book uh, against the world, against life about Lovecraft. And he made a really interesting point when he talked about you know, Lovecraft famously left Providence for a very brief spell, came to New York, had some kind of complete freak out at the presence of other races, basically, and then returned to Providence, sort of charged up with this, like, you know, frantic hatred that led to things like the Dunwich Horror. Mm -hmm. And Welbeck had a really good point, I think, when he said, like all true racists, Lovecraft was not primarily horrified at the existence of any given race, but at the inevitability of the mixing of races. Mm hmm. Yeah, and that's what you know. So that brings us to Dunwich Horror, which which really is about you know this town going to seed through having a kind of dark annunciation, right? It's like the inverted Christ myth, where you know a virginal woman. Actually, another interesting thing to point out is the relation between incest and racial mixing, because on the one hand they're opposites, right? One is like degenerate from from their point of view because it's too close within the gene pool, one too mm -hmm. wide. Mm -hmm. But within a story like Dunwich, you have both because you have like this kind of degenerating incestuous clan, you know, in the hills outside of town, who then you could say to save themselves from terminal incest, 
uh, one, one woman from that family becomes pregnant with what basically is a kind of antichrist. Right. And at first, like if you're just looking for what the implication is, there's a few pages there where it seems like she might have gotten pregnant with her own father's child. Right. It's sort of like, wait, because nobody knows, you know, and then and then over time you realize like, oh, it's actually much worse than that. Which... That, that, would, that would be like letting her letting her off the hook if that were true. Right. And that right, would be Faulkner, right? right? Faulkner is obsessed well, with that. You know, lines of family mm -hmm. crossing by mm -hmm. basically that form of like uh, father daughter incest for sure. Well, it just it occurs to me now how Lovecraftian Rosemary's Baby is, uh, and of course, you know, you just mentioned uh, the incest thing. That's the other great Polanski movie, Chinatown. Yeah, so that's got, right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I mean, and yeah, yeah, yeah. There could be a there could be a Polanski, uh, you know, Polanski's touching on the same thing. And in the in the After Dark, we're gonna mm -hmm. we're gonna throw uh, David Cronenberg into the mix of this a little bit. And we'll talk about some other things. I'm sure there'll be some 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 stuff we can't didn't quite or talk about as much as we'd like. But that's another that's another not an American specifically, but you know, close enough. For our and how do they get the After Dark, Brad? They get that at patreon.com slash art of dark pod where you can get 20 to 30 minute after dark episodes for every episode we do and the book. Club. Yes. And you're going to want to do that. Uh, yeah. We are trying to make half a Crowley this year. 333 <laughs> patrons. We're mm -hmm. chugging away. We're getting there. So good. Yeah. I, this is fascinating. Uh, and of course, we're, we're so far removed, I would say, in polite society and modern contemporary society from these ideas uh, David, but then again, we also aren't. I mean, you can go online and find all of this happening right now uh, if you click the third link. And yeah. it's nice to try to to imagine that this doesn't still exist, but of course it does. And uh, people are extremely terrified to talk about these subjects. Yeah. And maybe for good reason. It provokes a lot of very strong feelings. Uh, yeah. yeah. As, as then, still now. Yeah. And I think me, it's crucial. Or, go ahead. I was going to say, let, I, I wanted, wanted to read a particularly Faulknerian Lovecraft passage for, for people who maybe are listening to this who are Faulkner heads, but, uh, you know, haven't quite stepped into Lovecraft. See, Lovecraft. Right. These are, I'm trying to imagine. The, I love this episode already because yeah. certified banger it's going to be. I can feel yeah. it because it's mm -hmm. we're trying to make a Venn diagram where mm -hmm. you might not think one would exist. Uh, and so there, that's and exciting. What, what I think we're finding is it's actually big. Like the mm. center is actually there's a lot going on in the middle right. of it. And so and and the thing that happens with Lovecraft is I think I think a lot of people who um how to say this as diplomatically as possible. I think a lot of people are able to sort of dismiss Lovecraft in their head because he's not only for the racist stuff and and we talked about that at length in our core episode but also because he falls into the speculative realm right Lovecraft's not writing realistic stuff and there are still a contingent of people who for whom that stuff isn't somehow serious um and I think I want to throw this passage out there for a person who's a who's a real Faulkner head listen to this and tell me this isn't sort of like Absalom, Absalom. Okay, this is from the Dunwich Horror. And it's just a couple paragraphs, but it'll go quick. For a decade, the annals of the Waitleys sink indistinguishably into the general life of a morbid community used to their queer ways and hardened to their May Eve and All Hallows orgies. 
Twice a year, they would light fires on the top of Sentinel Hill, at which times the mountain rumblings would recur with greater and greater violence. While at all seasons, there were strange and portentous doings at the lonely far farmhouse. In the course of time, callers professed to hear sounds in the sealed upper story, even when all the family were downstairs, and they wondered how, how swiftly or how lingeringly a cow or bullock was usually sacrificed. There was talk of a complaint to the Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals, but nothing ever came of it, since Dunwich folks... Uh, since, since Dunwich folk are never anxious to call the outside world's, or sorry, are never anxious to call the outside world's attention to themselves, they don't want to. Uh, about 1923, when Wilbur was a boy of ten, whose mind, voice, stature, and bearded face gave all the impressions of maturity, a second great siege of carpentry went on at the old house. It was all inside the sealed upper part, and from bits of discarded lumber, people concluded that the youth and his grandfather had knocked out all the partitions and even removed the attic floor, leaving only one vast open void between the ground story and the peaked roof. They had torn down the great central chimney, too, and fitted the rusty range with a flimsy outside tin stovepipe. In the spring after this event, old Waitley noticed the growing number of whippoorwills that would come out of Cold Spring Glen to chirp under the window at night. He seemed to regard the circumstance as one of great significance and told the loungers at Osborne's that he thought his his time had almost come. Right. I to me, it's it doesn't quite have the 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 Faulknerian flourish in terms of syntax, but that is how Faulkner might set something up. I think of a rose for Emily. It's a lot about like what's going on inside that house and nobody's quite sure, but everybody sort of knows and and it ties into various traditions and histories of the area. And there's not a character. You're not you're not focalized in the emotional reality of a specific character. This is all stuff that's happening, right? You can almost hear the um you can almost hear the voice being we in this case, like we and we knew that this and, and instead of it being I or just, uh, you know, just a, a third person. So, um, yeah, I read this story and I kept I it <laughs> it made me think it did. I don't know if I'm going to be able to read a, a, a Lovecraft story without hearing Faulkner in it anymore. You can never unsee it, right? Once it's there, yeah. it's, there. it's like a, one of the it's itself a Lovecraftian mind virus. Yeah, yeah. Well, and it's, sure. they were both, of course, would have been steeped in the Bible, and, and mm -hmm. that comes across in the the style. Yeah, I think one interesting difference that um, Brad, you kind of alluded to there, part of why Lovecraft is considered tawdrier or like a bit like people are a little uncomfortable saying he's a good writer. I think mm -hmm. Alan Moore has a great line about him when he said, uh, no other writer has ever so over-described the indescribable. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. But but I think yeah. one reason why that's actually to me a little bit poignant is that Lovecraft, you know, was very ambivalent about professionalism, right? On the one hand, you know, he wanted to send his stories to weird tales. He wanted to be kind of validated and paid for his work, but he also viewed it as beneath the image of himself as a kind of cultivated gentleman, you know, and he was someone who kind of wished he were rich, but wasn't right. And right. Act, affected and acted as if he were. And that's a very American thing too, of like, what is class without cash, right? Like in America, yeah. you can't really fall back on family name, right? Yeah. So what yep. this means is that he never, he was never able to separate his work for pay and his work for art. Which means that all of his stories have these kind of strokes of genius within them, or at least his best stories, and this kind of, you know, pulp fiction quality. Whereas Faulkner was much more professional. You know, he had kids, he had mouse to feed, he was lived a kind of different life. 
And if you read some of Faulkner's like short stories that he you know sold to Life magazine or the Saturday evening Saturday Evening Post, or watch the movies that he wrote, those are pulp. Like those are not that artsy. But it means that Faulkner's novels seem much more highbrow because he separated those two tendencies, whereas Lovecraft combined them. Yeah. Now that's an interesting contradiction about Lovecraft's life, and it 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 there's a I think there's actually some kind of correspondence for me. So one one of the mysteries about Lovecraft, or one of the curiosities about him for me is he wrote these stories he had dreamlike visions about them as a boy and had practices in which he was purposely trying to give himself these these visions later um different manipulations of how he fell asleep and things like that and yet if you were to ask him what his sort of cosmology was he would say that he didn't believe in any of it. Like, it's not like according to him if you were just asking a conversation it's not like he believed cthulhu was out there somewhere right this is all just fancy but there's there's an ex, there's there's I don't know that if I, I if I believe him like I think he did at some level believe this stuff was maybe not the specifics maybe not exactly Cthulhu and you know but I think he had to have bought in to this on some level I, what do you make of that I think there's an interesting thing you know this book called The Conspiracy Against the Human Race by Thomas Ligotti yeah I haven't he, read it I want to but I know I'm aware of it but yeah. his basic take on it is that Lovecraft truly internalized the ideas of Einstein and like really understood what it like what Einstein was getting at about the cosmos and how sort of vast and complex and perhaps godless the universe was. And yet perhaps Lovecraft internalized it so deeply that it did dislodge whatever kind of lingering Christianity he had, but then something else rushed to fill the vacuum, right? And he did populate it with these almost like neo-pagan gods you know and he might claim not to believe in them but as he sort of perceived them in a way that is deeper than belief which actually is what his characters do too right his characters don't part of what's interesting about the stories is that they're not they don't hinge on belief right they're not like older supernatural tales where it's like do you believe in vampires do you believe in werewolves? they're just presented as a material fact but it's so overwhelmingly real it almost makes everything else that you thought was real look like a matter of belief oh yeah no you're right you're right you're actually confronted with the actual thing and thereby like you're right it doesn't matter he somehow transcends the notion of whether you believe it or not right yeah 100 totally and there isn't a moment either i don't think it's been a long time since i've read lovecraft brad covered him on our core episode mm -hmm. which you, if you haven't heard you, you ought to go back and listen to it after you listen to this star yeah. episode yeah. uh but it isn't a, there isn't a case that I recall having read his work where someone grabs a crucifix and gets themselves out of it or prays and gets, you know, invokes the name of Jesus Christ or whatnot. No, there's no not. getting out of it, Kevin. There's no getting out of it. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. And I think that's an important question going back to this idea of what makes them deeply American is they both wrestle with this question of like, is America a Christian nation or not? in a really deep way. And they have different answers, right? That Lovecraft says no, but his version of atheism is pretty pantheistic. Right. And Faulkner might say yes. I mean, Faulkner's work is much more explicitly Christian, but it's sort of like, what is Christianity when it's this far from Rome, let's say, or from, you know, whatever the centers of Protestantism would be, maybe London, right? That it's like, mm. what does Christianity look like in backwards Mississippi? And like, can it be, you, know, you see this in Latin American literature too, right? But it's like, can it be, reinvented in some form that makes it relevant to a new place and a new paradigm 
or is it just this kind of like clinging to you know these meaningless symbols of the cross and whatever that aren't yeah. going to do anything against the demons that's that actually live here? Yeah, that's interesting. And it calls to mind I, reading accounts from like um, sort of the 1600s and things of settlers here who came here, you know, God fearing Christians, but noticed how more amenable the 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 geography and the nat and, and wildlife and everything were to the natives and some of the europeans basically said yeah our gods don't live here like our god doesn't live here like it's it's their god is way stronger here than ours is right you know all your people are dying of diseases you don't even have a theory of what a disease is and they're all fine and managing to scrape together what seems like an abundant lifestyle out of this land that's killing you right it would be interesting you would that's a test of faith for sure right and these people believe in like you know who knows what um you probably can't even understand it let alone you know understand the language let alone really grok what their what the what their cosmology is yeah and that's a big part building. of, of um, Sutben in Absalom, Absalom too, right? That he has some kind of like uh, alliances with with the native tribes in Mississippi that have somehow made him more powerful than the mm -hmm. some, somewhat uh, easy to take advantage locals who like don't seem to understand the world that they're in. Right. You know? And yeah, as part Sutpen, of Sutpen you know, understands what the game is better than other people, doesn't he? Yeah. Yeah, and he listens, right? It's like this combination of, you know, he's more arrogant and more domineering than everyone else. But he also understands what's actually happening. He's not lost in a kind of dream of another time. You know, he's 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 like a uh, his eyes are on the future. He's a man mm -hmm. on the make. You know, like right. the Snopeses, who are insidious forces. But I think Faulkner kind of I don't know if he admires them, but he recognizes why they're powerful within this kind of free for all culture. Yeah, yeah. Well, America rewards those kinds of people for right. good or ill. Totally. Yeah. 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 Is it yeah. fair to say that? In, at the risk of sounding like a fanboy and bringing it up too frequently, I don't think we, it doesn't come up on every episode. But uh, fair to say, in the glass bead game uh, sense, is the perfect marriage of the Faulknerian and the Lovecraftian True Detective season one. <laughs> Are we? Which, which, is, that which is the right which is the Lagatian, right? I mean, Lagatian mm -hmm. himself, you know, fused those two things, and then it, yeah, perfectly found its place in that very rare season never to be repeated <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah yeah the well mm. and and you you brought up uh an interesting point uh in the notes about the passenger about cormac mccarthy's latest uh maybe his last uh contributions the passenger and stella maris to me they're almost one book in a way and they're they're meant to they're interlinked w what do you what's lovecraftian about the passenger what's Faulknerian about it where is it how is it in this Venn diagram we've built it's also very true detective-esque because it takes place on that sort of swampy gulf coast of northern Florida and, and Louisiana mm -hmm. so you know the connection between Faulkner and McCarthy is more direct right? I think McCarthy even inherited Faulkner's editor uh, when Faulkner died so there was yeah, this sort of handoff of, yeah yeah who is sort of like you know who is going to be the great you know, chronicler of uh, almost like Old Testament reckoning in the American backwoods, right? I mean, that's clear what what that means. The Lovecraftian aspects of McCarthy are always there. You can see it in um, Child of God for sure. He's kind of like a Dunwich Horror guy. Mm. Um, but but to stick with the passenger, you know, I think you see this sense of like ancient monsters, right? Or this just like 
you know, McCarthy often calls it like a medicine show, right? Or some kind of like freak show of these like ragtag circus beings that he calls the horts, like the cohorts, I guess, in, in the passenger mm-hmm. that seem to come out of some realm that is always on the edge of being psychological, right? So like, you know, I guess this is kind of a spoiler, but he does something really interesting in the passenger where this, you know, ramshackle group of various like flipper armed monstrous beings appear yeah, the, thalid- the thalidomide kid the thalidomide kid. Among them. yeah yeah a- appear first mostly to alicia the sister of the main character who's in this asylum called Solomaris. and so they're presented as like projections of her psyche and that might be what a more conventional author would stick with and you could have this one-to-one projection but then the thing that makes mccarthy so interesting is halfway through the book he has these same creatures appear to her brother who's nowhere near the asylum and that's like the Lovecraftian thing of like the psychological and the ontological are maybe much closer together than we'd like to think. Yeah. Yeah. And, and in the work of David Lynch too, of course. I'm yeah, sure. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah There's something Lynch that just a... feels so right and true about this in, in the Americas. Mm-hmm. And the hat Lynch yeah. too, you know, has the same tension in like what kind of guy he is i think between a certain conservatism or like a yearning toward you know the good old days and you know he always wants to call himself an eagle scout right and his thing about being from you know missoula montana and this kind of like um his obsession with the wizard of oz and yeah i don't mean a political conservatism but just like a yearning for simpler older times but also this kind of like wild embrace of something that feels like newer than the new like something that feels like it's beyond time you know that's something that they're kind of I think it's what makes all those artists interesting. It's like there's some genuine friction going on in their psyche that they're not just like gee whiz, like fanboys of like the new, the way maybe a lot of sci-fi writers are, nor are they like genuine reactionaries like Dostoevsky or or Welbeck. Like they're somewhere in between in a way that just sparks something like very strange because I I think it's, yeah. Yeah. I mean, and how does, how does the great season three, uh, of Twin Peaks, possibly the the end of Twin Peaks. What's the last line? I think it's "What year is this?" <laughs> yeah. And we what, struggle what's, with what's that. What's my age America. again? Right. Yeah, right. We, <laughs> we struggle totally. with that in in America. Uh, we really yeah. do. Yeah. Mm. Right. Mm. And I think that's exactly it. That's part of what makes them, you know, Faulkner and Lovecraft so interesting is that they were unsettled, you know, in terms of like their sense of where are we going in time and where are we going in space? I mean, you know, a major similarity, maybe one of the most concrete that we haven't brought up yet is they had this very similar way of being like homegrown autodidacts, right? And like always living in one place, not a center of power, you know, being like hyper self-educated, but I don't think either of them graduated high school. And having this, like, that's, I think, also a very American thing of, like, every, you know, the world's your oyster, but there's no rules. There's no format. Like, there's no real mm-hmm. curriculum, you know, and they just absorbed all this stuff. And then in terms of space, it's a similar thing. That on the one hand, they're, like, hyper-local in this kind of self-imposed, reclusive way, like Emily Dickinson. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, they're talking about, like, the universe. Like, they're talking about way more space than, you yeah. know, John Steinbeck or Dos Passos or someone who's a more terrestrial mm-hmm. writer would be talking about. Yeah, right. It's there's something about like if you just stay in this one spot and you keep digging right there, maybe you'll get to it. Yeah. 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 It's like you have to give up the world for the sake of the universe. Right. Interesting. Very interesting. Yeah. Yeah. There's a there's a spot in Stella I think it's in Stella Maris, but it might be in the passenger where Alicia refers to 
Oh, I I meant to, I should have pulled this up. I didn't know if we would get to this or not. But she th- to dumb it down. There's basically this this Alicia does math to the point that she sees past math, and there are monsters out there, like huge, huge scaled monsters that she is somewhat terrified of. Um, and that to me is like this Lovecraftian thing as well, like the fact that like you start with this set of rules that seems seems systematized and systematizable seems like it can be optimized seems like it can be understood and grokked and then the further you the the more the resolution amps up if you can handle it what you realize is what that's attempting to describe is something completely indescribable right and so maybe it's, it's like it's... yeah go okay. ahead I know McCarthy talks about um, Kurt Gödel too, right? And the idea of like incompleteness or the sense that no matter what you study, you'll eventually see through it to the universe, right? To, to the scaly monsters. And that mm-hmm. maybe, I don't know if Lovecraft was reading Gödel, but I, I wouldn't be surprised if he was. I mean, it's the same time period. Mm-hmm. But whether or not he was, that's definitely true of Lovecraft that I think it's like another anxiety, the same way he has this anxiety about, you know, wanting to be a man of the world and wanting to like hide in his aunt's attic, right? And like he has both right. of those at once, you know? Mm-hmm. Um similar anxiety you know that you see in his characters too that they're so desperate for knowledge right and they're so kind of like earnest and even naive in their desire to know but they also know i think they do come to understand before it happens that the ultimate reward for knowledge is having your mind blown in a horrible way <laughs> that is the trade off right that all information if you drill down far enough is an info hazard Right. <laughs> yeah. And you just can't take, you know, he even says that, right. That's the famous line of um, Call of Cthulhu, right. That like the greatest gift ever given to mankind is the inability to correlate the contents of our mind. And if we ever became able to correlate them all into a complete picture, he says something like, you know, we would go mad forever or retreat into a new dark age. I think and if, that and if people... that's not a prophecy of the internet, <laughs> yeah, that's right? just what I was going to say. So yeah. how does social media make you feel? Do you wish we right. could put that genie back in the bottle sometimes? Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 And, that, you know, I think, I think Faulkner to kind of tie Faulkner into this. I mean, I, I think, and I can never say the name of the County, right? Yak- hey, Yakna yeah. Patalfa. Okay, great. We had we had our friend Aaron Gwynn on to do it. He just like he didn't even think about it. He said it perfect. Um, it sounds like a Cthulhu monster. <laughs> it does sound like a Cthulhu, and it's and it's a made up word, right? It's a totally it is a made like up word. Own. It's yeah. it is like glossolalia. You could just go yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but there is something there is something, and I found this interesting thinking about Faulkner. Apparently, later on in his life. Faulkner got a little bit confused about the names he had used and what character had been in what book. And there is something about like, you imagine him sitting down trying to not even trying envisioning this entire fictional community that is a sort of a stand in for for how he sees where he's from and the idea that he keeps building it and building it. And then at some point, it sort of breaches containment and be begins to become incoherent like this attempt to he's going to corral this thing but eventually it can't actually be maintained and now you've got people in the wrong parts of their story and people with different names like that almost feels lovecraftian in and of itself that whole process that just like you're going to you're going to carry this this thing out and at the end of it it's 
it's mon- it's it's mutated it's monstrous it's got two heads on one on one body and that sort of thing um yeah very interesting and it goes back to their you know, racial obsessions too that i think like the thing that makes that more than just a like atavism is that it's so deeply rooted within the characters because the characters in Lovecraft and Faulkner always want to understand their own genealogy. And they always suspect that if they trace it back far enough, they're going to find people breeding with with rats or with sea monsters. And it's just always right. going to be the case. Right. There's always this like contamination. And for Faulkner, it's 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 very much about uh, is it light in August? That's very much mm-hmm. about whether or not he has a drop of black blood. Right. And Christmas, right? Yeah, JC. And and yeah. Faulkner himself had had anxieties about that based on things that had happened in his family, right? Yeah. As do all of them. You know, I mean, in a way you could say that's our source of strength, but it's like what makes us not just culturally, but perhaps somewhat racially different than wherever we think we started from in Europe. You know, even if you view yourself as European, your sense mm-hmm. of what your history is is has these kind of mysteries in it that may be one of the best things about America, right? But it's yeah. like, you know, people like Lovecraft and Faulkner, you know, they did definitely perceive it in a negative way, but they also perceived the power of it, the sense that it was meaningful, that it mattered, you know, what blood was in this way that, you know, was partially just the times, but I think partially resonates today, you know, maybe in an uncomfortable sense, but it gets at something of like this mystery of, you know, who are you really and how much do you really know and how much do you want to know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, the the great severing of the crossing of the ocean and how your people came uh, in right. all directions. And uh, David Mamet has a line about America in one of his books. Uh, he said something about that. The uh, like I can't remember the exact line, but it's like the the unhappy truth of our origins or something like that. People didn't come over here because things were going well. Many were dragged over here. Uh, yeah. rather notably it's yeah. it's uh quite intense yeah, and dramatic many, to think about many escaped to hear like a house you escape a house on fire and right? they still are yeah. mm-hmm. this is the story we are living in it he, uh, history didn't end yeah yeah, yeah. very interesting right. no mm-hmm. and you see that in both of them too this idea of being like there's a beautiful line at a professor in college who was teaching a faulkner course and he said uh i think faulkner actually said this or maybe this is just this guy's take on it but he said um Faulkner aspired to write as if the begats of the Old Testament hadn't ended, but had continued in Mississippi. Oh, <laughs> I love that. Wow. <laughs> he does have he does have moments where he is striving for the feel of a book of the Bible, doesn't he? Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And it's a kind of insane ambition that is part of what makes American literature to me really vibrant, you know, to go back to Melville. But it's like there's this wild. Yeah, I read this book once about, you know, American like religious extremism and it was talking about Joseph Smith and Mormonism and it said you know there's been endless people writing exegeses on the bible and you know talking about different things throughout the world but only in america do you get one guy who's like i'm just writing a new book of the bible right. I'm, I'm adding this to the bible <laughs> <laughs> that is that is a particularly well it seems to be a kind of a particularly american thing right and yeah. i mean you talked about the severing of the traveling across the atlantic i mean that does make sense we can't not live with our myths and stories and lineages we can't you know we're go- so we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna make them up if we don't if if they're not granted to us right yeah right i mean that's my newest novel it's called the new house which basically is this story from a jewish perspective and it's sort of this hmm. jewish family who are seeking the new jerusalem within america and there's this obsession that it has to be here like it can't be israel israel's like a lost cause right like it has hmm. to be 
you know, the vision has to occur in America or it's over there or there is no more vision. Yeah. But that tension is really interesting to me, you know, and that's sort of, I kind of feel that way that there's just like, you can't, the old world is kind of a lost cause in some sense. Like there is some sense that whatever the problems of America are, they have to be maybe not solved, but it's like their energies have, you have to ride out those energies to the final reckoning, whatever it's going to be. Yeah. Well, let me tell you what it's like to grow up Catholic in America because (laughs) the the dissonance is real. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting. It only becomes more acute as I age. I just Mm. see the, the differences more and I've become more active in the church here recently, but also just when you grow up in it, in this country, it's very odd, creates an odd kind of schism in the psyche. Let's just say. Yeah. Yeah. Right. No, it's interesting. We just read, um, uh, a very old man with enormous wings, the Garcia Marquez story, Mm. which was another, you know, had a kind of mutual influence on Faulkner. And, and did a very similar thing, right? Of creating a universe in his hometown and inventing Macondo as this kind of fantasy version of a town in what was otherwise described pretty accurately as Colombia. But you have that same anxiety where like an angel washes up in this town in Colombia, you know, or at least a man with wings who they think is an angel, but no one in the town can decide, or at least no one can agree. And someone's like, look, let's write to Rome. And maybe there they'll send a bishop who will come and tell us if it's a real angel or not. Right, but it's that exact thing that somehow the like authority to be certain is not vested anywhere in the new world. Yeah, yeah, mm. interesting. But but the place where a real angel would appear is here, is not Rome. Right, right, right. Interesting. I'm not familiar. I, I have not read that 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 Marquez piece. I'm so it's like four pages. It's a good. It's called a tale to... for children. I don't know if you really meant <laughs> meant it to be a tale for children, but it is called that. Interesting. Well, as we're getting as we're getting kind of close to the end here, David. Sell us on, you've sold me on it already, but sell the audience, sell Kevin on the Room in Dodge City trilogy. Okay. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, I can tie it into these guys. So I, okay, great. You know, they wrote their pieces in this super, super intense 10 um, year period, right? 1927 to 1937, which was, you know, and I would say they're two of my favorite authors. Two of my other favorite authors, Jewish authors, would be Kafka and Bruno Schultz. And Bruno Schultz, Street of Crocodiles, did literally the same thing in Poland uh, of creating this kind of like infinite universe in a town. Right? His town's called Drohobich, which is a real town, but I doubt it has a Street of Crocodiles in it. Right? So I mean, there's right, still a, right. there are fantasy elements within it. And I think that kind of genre slippage was just like really hyper valuable to me as like a 17 through 25 year old. And the idea that, you know, I knew I wasn't interested in outright fantasy, things that you know were sealed off in another world with another name just didn't really speak to me. But I also wasn't that drawn toward realism. And so I think something about, you know, you could call these guys magical realists in a way, but but the idea of setting fantastical and bizarre and kind of dreamlike and perverse and maybe darkly hilarious events in a real place, I somehow needed that in order to like open up the whole vista that I was going to work on. And so my first novel is called Angel House that I wrote right after this, like just uh, obsessive Faulkner fate. So it was a, probably my most Faulknerian novel. It's kind of me trying to do a version of Jefferson in Northampton. So it's like mm. me taking my childhood memories, but um, turning like some of the feelings that I had as a child into genuine situations that I could describe as an adult. 
and then out of that, this what is now a Dodge City trilogy, Room and Dodge City trilogy, kind of grew out of that project. Sometimes literally, it was like actual stuff that I cut, and then it developed in mm. its own way. Um, and they're much, they're kind of part of the same project. And I sort of have this life goal of creating like an actual nested fictional universe that is like overlaid onto the world map. So I have, you know, different books that take place in different, sometimes imagined places, but sometimes real places like Dodge City. You know, it is, I treat it like the actual Dodge City. And my wife is from Kansas. And I spent a lot of time in Kansas. Although um, I went to the Kansas Book Festival a couple of years ago and they asked me, had I been to Dodge City? And I said, I've made a point of going to every town in Kansas except Dodge City. <laughs> you got to keep that. You got to keep the imagined version of it pristine. I get that. Yeah. Right. yeah now I that I've finished number that. three, when it comes out, like when the third, the third one's not out yet, but when it's out, I think maybe then I'll go to Dodge City and I'll leave yeah. like the trilogy like on a doorstep somewhere or something. Yeah, there you go. There you Put go. it in one of those little giveaway uh, little book boxes. Yeah, yeah. Or, uh, maybe, maybe like, with like the, the brochures and like the Chamber yeah. of Commerce. <laughs> yeah, oh, this is the book. These are the books about Dodge City. Yeah, you got to check those out. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. yeah. <laughs> well, David, where can people yeah. find you? We'll, we'll put a link to your Twitter handle in the show notes. Uh, where can people find you? So everything is under Ravid Dice, which is just like David Rice, but with the um, first letter switched. So on Twitter, it's at Ravid Dice, right? R-A-V-I-D-D-I-C-E. On Instagram, same thing, Ravid Dice. And my website that has links to everything is just raviddice.com. Great. Love it. Yeah. Brad, thank you so much for organizing this. What are we going to talk about on the After Dark or Patreon? Patreon.com slash Art of Dark Pod. Yeah, we're gonna throw uh, we're gonna throw David Cronenberg in the mix because David David has has put out a book uh, about David Cronenberg, and I think there's correspondences. I think we're gonna find there's some fertile territory there, and we're also going to uh, talk about Lovecraft actually wrote in letters what his opinion of Faulkner was. And so we're going to talk Ooh. about that as well. We're going to quote those Ooh. letters and, and talk about that. Listen, I don't want to give the sales pitch too hard for this, but if you like this pod, you don't want to miss the after darks. We save the juicy stuff for that. We get juicy on main yeah. too, yeah. fair to say. Yeah, but please. We put a lot of work into this show. Patreon, Patreon.com slash Art of Dark Pod. I'm going to go downstairs during this quick break. We'll go ahead, Brad. Well, I was going to say, don't forget the book uh, bookends reading club. Next up is the the cult uh, what is it the essential emily dickinson we're mm. reading i think it's about mm-hmm. 100 pages of emily dickinson's right. um, poems and we're going to hang out we're going to talk about them I'm, i've got some ideas kevin's going to have some ideas and you all will have some ideas that they're a good time and brad is preparing dickinson right now and i'm, and I'm preparing bukowski. Uh, Charles bukowski right so we're going to have salt and pepper in the house the two poles be- of american poetry East Coast versus West Coast (laughs) and more. (laughs) Super exciting. I was just going to say during the break here, I'm going to go down into the basement and make sure that the unspeakable thing has not broken its its chains and its its shackles. I need to make sure it's still locked up down there in its cage. Wish me luck, boys. Good luck, sir. Thank you, David. Thank you. All right. See you in a minute.